This is The Guardian. Please be aware that today's episode contains some swearing. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello friends, as always, you join me in my kitchen and I'm looking for something to eat before today's guest arrives. I'm doing something that I've never actually tried before. Brace yourself. It's a peanut butter and jam sandwich and I'm doing it in the air fryer. I'm going to butter the outside of the... As you can hear, there's hungry seagulls outside who've heard about the magic of this sandwich. How will it get crisp? That's the thing. Will it get crisp? Right. (laughs) Uh, Start. It's preheated. It's preheating, everybody. It's preheating. So today I'm welcoming a proud Londoner into my house. An English actor who it seems is popular with everybody that he meets. Eddie Marsan has been described in acting terms as being everywhere and nowhere. But when you look at his list of acting credits, I'm inclined to say that only the everywhere part is true. Despite living in the East End for the first three decades of his life, Eddie has done much of his work in America, regularly starring in big Hollywood movies such as Sherlock Holmes, Vice and Deadpool 2 and steadily gaining the admiration of some of the biggest names in the industry. Even Steven Spielberg has called on him. He started with bit parts in The Bill and Grange Hill but now Eddie's UK credits include BBC's Ridley Road and the leading role in ITV's The Thief, His Wife and The Canoe. The bizarre true story of a man who faked his own death so he and his wife could claim insurance money. But as ever, I'm also interested in the food that has fuelled his steady rise. So I wonder what he'll bring for me today. Oh, it's ready. Hang on. She's a beauty. 
I have seen the future of sandwiches and it is delicious. Eddie Marsan, thank you so much for doing this. My thank pleasure. you for being lovely, here. Lovely to be here. I have to say, you were the first person that's been on this podcast that I've sat beside whose organs are on completely the opposite side to me. Apparently, that's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a dextrocardiac. Yes. A dextro- or, well, I have this thing called. I think it's called sinus invertus. I think that's the right word. Okay. Where all my visceral organs are reversed. When I was a kid. Uh, I had a fit, I think, when I was a baby and I almost died. And my dad was Catholic. I was raised a Catholic, well, born a Catholic. I'm, I'm, I'm not Catholic, but I was christened Catholic. And, and he got a he got a priest to come in. And, and I think they gave me, they christened me and gave me the last rites in, on the same day. <laughs> wow. So And they found out when I survived that I actually, that I had, uh, I was a dextrocardiac. The funny thing is, I'm a terrible malaprop. Yeah, I, I get words wrong all the time. And when I went to printing college, we had to our first day of printing college. We had to sit up and tell everybody something special about yourself. And I'm a dextrocardiac, so I got up and told all these people that I am an aphrodisiac. <laughs> There's not many in the country, and I'm one of. Them. <laughs> and when I got home, I said, "My mom said, how was college?'" And I said, "Well, I told them I'm an aphrodisiac." And she said, "You're a dextrocardiac. You're an aphrodisiac." I didn't even know what an aphrodisiac was. Ladies, form an oddly cue. Yeah. Here I am. <laughs> I always ask my guests to bring along their favourite comfort food for me to try. Please reveal your snack. It's in a paper bag. It's in a paper bag. Here it is. Okay. No, there's, there's, there's oh. two jars of what looks like green wallpaper paste, <gasps> but it's called liquor. It's pie mash. Oh. Actually, it's um, not pie and mash. It's just pie mash. Pie mash. Pie mash. Yeah. I what I always say to people is the first question I always ask is what's in the pie. You don't ask. <laughs> don't ask. And that's, that's the it. answer. That's you don't okay. ask. <laughs> and the second thing is because I'm just going to open up this carton of the liquor. It's such a beautiful emerald green, <laughs> otherworldly, pretty colour, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. What's in that? I think it's water, flour, and parsley. That, that's what I can un- I understand. But it's a kind of secret formula, really. I mean, I come from Bethnal Green, so we had Kelly's in Bethnal Green. Okay. And the, the weird thing is about different pie mash shops is if I would go south of the river to um, to Manzi's in Tower Bridge, yeah. that tastes completely different. And it's almost like... <laughs> It, it's almost like a different religion. It's yes. like I can't eat that. That's not yeah. fine. This is and uh, and and even <laughs> Kelly's in Bethnalgreen Road. There was there was another one further down Roman Road, but that wasn't the same. That was the one. And people have particular ones they have to go to. Do you think it's in the mash or do you, the, the 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 differences or is it in the pastry? Maybe no. So it's just in the psychology. It's, so all, the, it's all tribalism. Tribalism. When I was a kid. <laughs> In the pie mash shop, there used to be a young girl serving up the mash and another one giving the drinks in the middle and another woman, an older woman, always serving up the pies. Yeah. 
And me and my mates used to laugh that in, 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 um, if you went to the pie mash shop in Bethnal Green long enough, there was always a really gorgeous looking girl <laughs> serving the mash. <laughs> and then there was a, a quite an attractive woman in her 20s or 30s serving her drinks. And then there was an old woman with a fag in her mouth, hanging out her mouth, who would serve, serve the pies. And gradually the young woman would become the 30 year old. And, they, and, and it was like yeah. the, the cycle of life. It is the cycle of life. Yeah. You see, by now, I don't even think I'd be allowed to do the, uh, what was it, the pie? Is the pie the, the older fa- lady? Fagash Lil. I wouldn't even be able to be her by my age. I'd be out in the corner. I'd be out in the kitchen, wouldn't I? Um, Are you enjoying it? Yeah, I'm really, really enjoying that. I mean, genuinely. It's great, isn't it? It's, the sauce is silky, isn't it? It's a yeah. silky kind of. Beautiful. Mm. And I love that, you know, the pie. I'm not going to ask what's in it. What's in it is brown. It's just yeah, brown, I, I isn't think it? it? I think it's a bit Sweeney Todd, to be honest with you. <laughs> we should not say that. <laughs> just as I took a delicious gravy-filled mouthful, it's a bit Sweeney Todd. When you were four, you and your mum and your dad and your three older sisters, you lived in Bethnal Green. Yes, yeah. Were you the type of family then that, did you all sit around the table and eat together or...? Not, not, not as much that I remember. Well, we were living in Mile End when I was a, when I up until the age of four, and my dad was um, is a ducker and diver. So one of my earliest memories was my dad would deliver beds all over these stores all over London, but he worked out a fiddle where he could flog beds also. Yeah, yeah. And I remember when I was a kid. There just being beds all over the house. You you walk, you walk down the stairs, you slide down a mattress and stuff, you know. But we moved to yeah. we moved to Bethnal Green, and um, I don't really remember sitting around much eating when I was a kid because it was a bit of a crazy house. It was really busy. My nan lived with us, and my nan, three older sisters, and my mum and my dad and two dogs, and it was a bit crazy. My dad used to go out a lot. He used to, he just used to get out of the house and go clubbing it and go to pubs, and he he had a big social life. My childhood was kind of in two households, if mm-hmm. I'm honest. My mum would, would, was very, very busy, and she would just do me, like, beans on toast or something. Sometimes she'd do a roast dinner, and she'd do a really good rice pudding. <laughs> but my parents had a difficult marriage for many years, and we had a very... There was a very large St. Lucian community in Bethnal Green, and um, there was a St. Lucian family, the Mitchell family, which were along, along the landing. And I became friends with them. And Mrs. Mitchell, who I now, since I was a kid, I've always called mum, mm. just kind of, they kind of took me in. Yeah. So a lot of my time eating communally was rice and peas and yeah. eating yam and, and yeah. fish cakes. That was where we, where I, most of my eating around a table was, really, yeah. if I'm honest. Good food, though. Oh, it's fantastic. And we went there, I went there last Thursday because my Nelson, the youngest brother, it's funny, uh, he, he came back from Malaysia because he's a teacher in Malaysia. And Emmanuel, who's a couple, who's one year older than Nelson, they're kind of, they are like, my, my, my wife says to me, they're, they're like brothers to me. Emmanuel said, Nelson's over, you've got to come up with us. So I drove down to, to him and mum was asleep upstairs and then mum hears, I mean, so she comes down and cooks us food and we'll sit down and we put the world to rights. We just yeah. sat there and just chatted for like hours. Who was in the Mitchell house then? There was, do you say Nelson? There was you. Nelson, was the youngest. Then there was Emmanuel. Yeah. 
Then there was June, and June went on to become at one point Gospel Singer of the Year. Then there was Charles, who studied to be a chef, studied to be a cook, could cook amazing birthday cakes. And then there was a brother, Alan, who died a couple of years ago. But Alan became an, a novelist. He became a graphic novelist. And he really was a massive influence on all of us because he he was, I suppose, we were talking about the other night, he was a nerd before nerds were fashionable, really. And <laughs> yeah. he taught us to read. Yeah. We all read comics because of him. And then their elder sister, Ruth, who died when I was 30. But she was, they were all a big family. And they just kind of embraced me, really. They took me in. And mum is cooking for them all. Mum's cook. Mum, mum was a single mum. I think she was a cleaner most of the time. And yet she would, you would literally go there and you'd sit around the kitchen table and all you had to do was sit and everybody would walk in, fill up a glass, fill up a cup of water and make sure the rice wouldn't burn. Yeah. And you'd all dish up the rice and you'd have fish cakes and you'd, you know. I remember going to drama school and we had to do this um, exercise where you had to do it and, and imitate peeling a vegetable. And I peeled a yam and people didn't understand what it was. And I, yeah, we always had, that was the kind of food I had when I was a kid. How did proper mum feel about mum she loved it she yeah. knew actually she kind of knew that i was safe yeah she knew that things weren't great at home sometimes and uh, you know to get and to get another kid out of the house and let him go somewhere else and know he's safe was okay i loved my community my home life was difficult but yeah. my community I love they literally I mean that saying that uh, it takes a village to raise a child but it was like that they I can see the best of me comes from them mm-hmm. you know yeah and 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 the diversity you know what I mean the different the different cultures and the different food and all of us all of us really interesting all of us having to find a cultural narrative that accommodated all of us within music, within clothes, within history, within anything, we had to find a cultural narrative that fitted us, this kind of urban, diverse East End. I read that around this point, you got quite into God. Yeah, I did. And, and how did that kind of thing come about for you, well, aged felt, 15? There was a pastor. And what he did was he came round and he showed us a video of the book of Revelations. And there was me and my mate Hendrix. And me and my mate watched this and suddenly we were terrified because we thought we're going to go to hell. Yeah, you're going to go and to so hell. And so we... Um, we became born again Christians. It was really weird, but Emmanuel, my, my Emmanuel was funny because Emmanuel was so cynical. And I remember, I remember this this Christian bloke saying to Emmanuel, <laughs> when we were kids all sitting around, and I was I was I was so invested in it, and and they were sitting around, and he said to Emmanuel, "I was a sinner for so many years. I used to go with women. I used to drink, go with women, go to clubs. But now, the last two years, I want to tell you what it's like to have Jesus in my life." And Emmanuel went, now do me a favour, tell me about 28 years before. (laughs) (laughs) Mum, Mrs Mitchell, I remember sitting with me and saying to me, Eddie, you're more intelligent than these people. They're manipulative. You're more intelligent. And she gave me a Bible. I remember she gave me a Bible. I think I've still got it in my office. But she said to me, don't do this. There really are, you know, and it was, it was like a cult. Did you feel like a sinner? Is that why you were... Yeah, my parents started 
to get divorced when I was 12 and it didn't finish until I was 16. They went, it was back and forth. Getting back together and... And and I didn't, and I think I had no moral compass in my life, no kind of balance. And so usually, you know, a kid at 16, I should be smoking spliff for whatever I'm doing. And I wasn't. I went and became a born-again Christian. So it kind of makes me realize now that I was completely lost. But that that confusion, that element of being lost, is, I think, what made me become an actor, in a sense. Yes. Because one of the things um, I am blessed with is that I always ask questions. But you'd left school. But what, what I mean... What were you doing at this point, 15 onwards? Then I became a, an apprentice printer. And then while I was an apprentice printer, I was very short of money. And I went in and asked uh, a man called Mr. Bennett. I asked him for a, to work in his menswear shop in Bethnal Green. Now, he was actually a bookmaker at Wolfenstow Dog Track. But him and his brothers run all these menswear stores. And I went in with, and, I, and he gave me a job. And he became like a father figure to me. So what did you do at lunchtime in the shop? Did you and Mr. Bennett eat together? We did. We used to, we used to get into the shop. I used to open the shop up because he used to live in Chigwell and I used to live in Bethnal Green across the road from the shop. So I'd go and open the shop up and then we'd clean it all down. We'd, we'd, we'd sort out all the clothes from the day before and whatever. And once it was all ready, I'd have to go up to Percy Ingalls on, on the Bethnal Green Road and go and get two sausage rolls. And then we'd sit down and we'd have two sausage rolls. And then on a... Yeah. Tuesday and a Thursday and a Saturday, he used to run a book in the uh, Wolfenstow Dog Track. You say, I'm going to do the numbers, which is basically does the odds for his book. And I'd sit there with him and help him do that, you know. And did you sit and have a proper chat? Did you oh. chat about life? Oh, we chatted about everything. We we had such a, we had such a good relationship. We had we used to laugh so much when I went when I first went to drama school because I'm a terrible malaprop. I came in to see him. Came back to drama school. And uh, he said, how you getting on? And I said, well, they said there's something wrong with my voice and they're going to send me to a chiropodist. <laughs> oh, <he's, laughs> his wife said, don't you mean a speech therapist? And Mr. <laughs> Bennett said, no, because he keeps putting his foot in it. <laughs> <laughs> that was the kind of thing we do. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I was younger, I thought that once I actually became an adult and I was 18, then everything would start being okay. Did you feel a bit like that? Did you kind of want to get, did you want to grow up and No, I, I never had that. I tell you what happened to me on my 18th birthday. Just before my 18th birthday, Manuel went out and bought me, he knew my birthday's coming up and I wasn't very confident. And he went out and bought me a massive big blue zoot suit. Okay. And it was a lovely suit. Yeah. And we, and uh, with a pocket, he got me a pocket, red pocket handkerchief because we used to dance yes. a lot. We used to dance. Me and Manuel yeah. Nelson taught me you how to dance. You love dancing, don't you? Yeah, we used to dance all the time. Right, hang on. What kind of dancing was it? I suppose you would call it Northern of, Soul. Was it Northern Soul? Yeah. yeah. There were certain drops we would do that. Did I, you do the drops? Uh, and then, and then I, when I went out, when I worked with Northern actors, they would say, "Oh, that's called the Wigan Roll," and I never knew it was called the Wigan Roll. Yes. I was like, "Oh, we just do that." Yeah. So we we would go out dancing, and I and Manuel on my eighteenth birthday, Manuel bought me this big blue zoot suit, and it was a lovely suit. And I met a girl called uh, Joycelyn because I, I mean, honestly, I was short, funny looking. Most of my mates, Emmanuel ended up being a male model, tall, dark. He, he, he went to Japan and became a male model. Nelson was gorgeous. I literally was the, this little short white bloke. The only thing I could do is dance. And I couldn't pull a toilet chain, honestly. <laughs> we used to, I think they were down all these areas. You used to clear the house out 
used to get all the furniture out of the house. So all the furniture in my flat, yeah. you go and put in Manuel's house. And then you get a big sound system and you just blare out music till about five in the morning. You can't really do this now. No, but we used to literally. And we had Sol Campbell's brother was a bloke called Paul Campbell. And Campbell, they call him Meatballs, Meatballs Campbell. And, and he was on the door. You give, him a, you give him a fiver and he was on the door. And he'd, and he'd and make sure that no one got in. And, you, and we would literally just dance all night long. Your 18th birthday, what's on the menu? Oh, <laughs> well, mum took me down to, um, Mrs. Mitchell, that is, took me down to uh, Petticoat Lane. And I don't know, and we were joking, like, I don't know whether they killed the goat there. <laughs> or whether the goat was already dead, but she she went into this thing, and I could it was like a, an abattoir, and she got the goat. She, we had curry goat, and she and her cousin Flavia, who used to be, at one point was the beauty queen of Saint Lucia. She won Miss Saint Lucia, and so it, it, in, on yeah. the mantelpiece you'd have a photograph of Flavia with this crown. Yeah, looking completely and Flavia gorgeous. Dished out all this. Flavia was good, and they dish out all this food yeah. at the party. So we, that, that's what we had at the party was was curry goat. So how did you end up going from a printing apprentice working in a clothes shop on the weekend to acting? Well, me and Emmanuel were on a in a club in Hackney and they were making a film called Empire State. I've never actually seen the film. And some bloke came over and his job was to go out and find local people to be extras in this film. And he saw me and Emmanuel dancing and he said, would you like to be extras in a film? And we said, yeah, okay. So we went to this studio, I think, near London Bridge. And we just were, t- were paid to dance on this dance floor. And and um, I saw Jamie Foreman walk across the dance floor yeah. doing a scene. It was brilliant. Yeah. And I remember just thinking, I can do that. That's what I want to do. And that was it. And he was, and I remember seeing him thinking, that's amazing. The, what, the way he did what he did was just blew my mind. So your mum and Mr. Bennett, they get the funds together for you yeah. to join a drama school. No, yeah, I, I applied for drama school or a load of drama schools. And uh, with Emmanuel coaching me, I mean, neither of us knew what we were doing. I couldn't get anything. Hang on a minute, Emmanuel was coaching you? Yeah, Emmanuel you. was coaching me. We're doing, we, I, was doing, I was doing Julius Caesar. We, I mean, me, me and Emmanuel, bless, we're the least academic blokes you've ever seen in your life. Julius Caesar's hard. I know. And it's really me, hard. Me, me and Emmanuel. The funny thing is, I've got a funny story that, when you print, when you're when you're a printer, there's a certain chemical balance, and if you don't get that chemical balance right, they call it scumming because you've okay. got, you've got to fix the balance. Yeah. Now, when I first read Shakespeare, and Shakespeare's got all these little commas all over the place, I didn't know they were commas. I remember going to man, you look at the scumming on that. Look at that. Look. <laughs> so out of all of that. <laughs> I went to all these drama schools and I auditioned, and I didn't get in any of them. Um, but Mountview uh, offered me an evening course, a foundation course. And I went and did the evening course. I was saying that, you know, I feel like you have become, over the years, you are one of Britain's best-known, most recognised character actors. But there was 10 years where you were doing things, and I'm going to quote what you've said. <laughs> I was crap, <laughs> but I learnt to act in anonymity. Yeah. I was crap, in front of three people in pubs with someone singing karaoke downstairs. 
it doesn't sound particularly enjoyable. What was acting giving you? Well, I kept, uh, even when I left drama school, I kept studying. I kept going back to study with different teachers. And um, it was kind of like therapy for me, really. There was such chaos on the estate, especially a lot of our fathers were given court orders not to come near the house and all that, you know. And, and I think all of us found ways in which we had to have control of our own lives. We had to create our own volition because we felt vulnerable if we didn't. And for me, even if I wasn't successful making a success of it, I was still working with Mr. Bennett and I was going to study with different acting coaches and, and kind of doing a psychology course, really, I suppose, and doing therapy as well. So I was beginning to work out what makes a character. It wasn't until you were 28 that you eventually moved away from the estate. Yeah, yeah. Was that hard? It was because I went to South London and, I, and South London is... <laughs> It's, it's like, I could, I could have gone to Timbuktu and it would have been easier than South <laughs> London. <laughs> There's a real divide. I, I went there for a couple of years. I didn't like it. And then I got a job in Singapore and Malaysia and Prague on a big job. And that's where I met my wife. Yeah. And then I was offered Gangs of New York with Martin Schools. So I went to live in, in, in Rome for nine months. And my wife went over to New Zealand. She was my girlfriend at the time to do. She was a makeup artist on Lord of the Rings. And then when she came back from New Zealand, she spent the last three or four months with me in Rome. Hang on. Why I'm back? Because I, you you met your wife when she was your makeup artist. Yeah. And, 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 and she had to make me up as a pig. And she married the pig. Do you remember the first time she, you, you saw her? Yeah, she had the right arm. She just moved that day and she had to do this body cast on me. And also she told me I was like third choice for the film. So <laughs> she thought she's got to do this for this actor and he's not even going to be in anyway. And she did it and I got the job. But she had to make me up as this pig. She was very good looking as well. Mm. I got me. And um, she, she was just, I used to watch her. I find people, I never, I've never met anybody in a club. I've never chatted anybody up. I find when somebody's being creative, yes. when they're not focusing on me, but they're focusing on something else, they're, much, yeah. they're beautiful. But she was just amazing. Like I used to watch her and think, God, I, I fancy something. <laughs> I love that, though. I love it when you're, it's just primal, but it's also deep and meaningful, but it's yeah. also primal. It sounds like a totally magical time. Was the food magical at that time? Yes, uh, it was actually, because I, I was staying in a place called uh, Borgo Pio, which is on the, on the entrance to the Vatican. Stephen Graham and Hannah were at, near the Spanish Steps, which was a bit like being in Leicester Square. But Borgo Pio was um, across the bridge, the, the papal bridge, and, and it was it was basically... The Vatican, basically. I used to go and get my papers in the morning from St. Peter's Square. And there was an amazing fish restaurant two streets away that would literally... You, there was no menu. You, you just yeah. go in there and they'd give you whatever they're cooking that day. That was, that was the way there. And it was yeah. amazing. But the way when I proposed to Janine, we were both in our pyjamas and drunk in the flat in Borgo Pio. And I took her down to St. Peter's Square and I sat on my knee and all the saints were looking and I asked her to marry me in front of her. She couldn't turn me down because she, <laughs> she, she got, because all the saints were looking. 
Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. You've said before that when you were young, your face, and I'm quoting you here, felt like a curse and now it feels like a blessing. What did you mean? I'm, I'm not a conventional looking man by any means. And I think when I was younger, as a teenager, I couldn't, I, I was terrible with girls. I had no confidence and I couldn't pull a girl. And then when I became an actor, I, I realized very early on that I wasn't going to be the leading man. That even as a young, even as even at drama school, they were giving the, the kind of juvenile lead parts to the good-looking posh boys, and I was kind of always the old man with gout or, or the grave digger or whatever, you know. They used to call me Captain Belcro because I used to play so many parts. So in a way, I knew very early on that my job as an actor, if I wanted to be an actor, I was never going to be asked to be me. I was always going to be asked to be somebody else. Some people are asked because they have a, a natural charisma. Basically, I think a charisma means men want to be them and women want to sleep with them. Yeah. And if they have that and, and, and you pay them 20 million, you make sure you put that on the screen. But nobody's ever asked me to be me. They always ask me to be somebody else, which was difficult in the beginning of my career. But as I get older is to my advantage because nobody has a fixed idea. Lots of people have lots of different ideas of me, which is great. You went from being a jobbing actor with parts in shows like The Bill and small independent films too. It feels like suddenly getting these amazing roles in blockbusters like Snow White and the Huntsman, Sherlock Holmes, Deadpool 2, Vice. And you shot the long-running series Ray Donovan in the States. And I read you flew back to London every weekend for seven years to cook Sunday lunch. Why was it so important for you to be home so regularly? I really valued my marriage. But I also knew that I didn't really, I wasn't going to be fulfilled as an actor in the UK. I wasn't getting the parts that that I wanted to get. I wasn't being offered the parts. I, I was being defined by, in a certain way in the UK that wasn't being defined in the US. By Within one year, I did uh, Vera Drake for Mike Lee and I did 21 Grams for Alejandro Gonzalez in Naruto. And those two films came out the same year and they both got Oscar attention. I didn't get Oscar attention, but I suddenly had a career as a character actor on both sides of the Atlantic. And I looked at the work that was being offered to me in the US compared to the work in the UK. And I realized that my career would go better in the US than it would in the UK. But also I had four children then and my kids were at school and my wife and we had a support network. So my wife and I decided we tried to move to America for about six months and we didn't like it. So we moved back and then we thought, okay, so what we'll do now is I will just Commute, commute back and back and forth and what I realized early on is I love my job 
and I love my family. You can't have a career, a family, and a social life. You've got to You're give right. up. You've got to give up the social life. So yeah. I would basically do my stuff and sleep on a plane, land, and be at the week, have the weekend with the wife and kids. So yeah. Daddy was always around. Wow. You know, in some way, shape, or form. I really need to ask this: H- How is the timetable of doing that? Right, talk me through it. You leave work on a Friday night. Well, you finish. You finish in Culver City on at Sony Studios. About they usually shoot me out by about seven seven thirty in the evening. I'd have no luggage because I had an I had an apartment in in the US, so I'd have no luggage, and then I'd get in the car yeah. and I'd drive to the airport, go to the BA desk, and because I'm flying so much, I'm suddenly a gold member, or whatever. They know me like that. They know hello, are you going back home? And they get me in. I go to the lounge. I'd have a steak dinner. I'd get on a plane, and they'd put me on a bed. And I'd sleep and I'd wake <gasps> up about, and we'd land about four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Taxi, get home. I'd be home by about half five on a Saturday evening. I'd have a meal with the kids, sit down, watch TV. And then we would, uh, Sunday morning, I'd get up, we'd cook, we'd have Sunday roast dinner. And then sometimes if I, if they didn't need me to shoot on the Monday, I could travel back on the Monday evening. So yeah. I could take the kids to school. If they needed me on a Monday, I'd have to leave on a Saturday, on Sunday afternoon. But some days, you know, Sunday shooting, they wouldn't need me to the Tuesday. So it's manageable. I have to ask the most important question, though. The roast dinner that you made, what was on the menu? Ah, now I've got a special way of doing my beef. But I, I, I do chicken, but my beef is very... My... <laughs> <laughs> what you do with the beef is, right, is you turn your oven up full whack and you do five minutes per pound. Then at the end of that time, you turn your oven off, but you don't, you leave the beef in the oven for two hours. Don't take the beef out. You can't take the beef out. You leave it in there for two hours. This and, feels like a very risky little and game. And it comes out and it's absolutely perfect. I've, I've, I've never heard, like, I, for, the, yeah, for the benefit of the listener, I just stared agog <laughs> then, stared agog. You're in the UK right now. Yeah got a very very interesting show out right now on itv that i cannot wait to see i genuinely mean this i cannot wait to see the thief his wife and the canoe yeah i mean was it fantastic to play it was it was very interesting to play it was very interesting to to play him it's a fascinating story 10 15 years ago i did a film for paddy constantine called tyrannosaur with Olivia Coleman and Peter Mullen. But I played this character who was pure toxic masculinity. And what's really interesting is then a, a depiction of toxic masculinity was so grotesque and so obscene and, and a comfortable distance from the audience. We could look at them and say, they're horrible, they're nasty, but they're not us. Yes. And now, post Me Too, depictions of toxic masculinity are more subtle. They're more nuanced. They're about in the living room. They're, you know, they're people you you could probably, you, they're friends of yours. And you think, well, how is this dynamic within this relationship formed, you know? And that's what I think his feast to the wife and the canoe is about, is, 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 is this dynamic within these two people who have been married for 30 years. And Darwin married John Darwin. She was very young. She knew nothing else. He had a very, very fragile ego. He was a narcissist. He was a fantasist. And so, and he dominated her. And so she had to go along with it in many ways. One of the great challenges of the piece is the culpability of Anne. Yeah. But that's brilliantly 
portrayed by Monica Dolan, who's absolutely amazing. In it. She's like the heart of the story. She is. She's incredible. An incredible actress. She's amazing. I mean, one of the reasons yeah. I wanted to do it was because they told me that you'd be working with her. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm in. So you live in West London now. Mm. I imagine it's very different from where and how you grew up. It is, yeah. Do you keep on any of the old East End food traditions? Yeah, I do. I do. My dad comes over on a Sunday morning and brings, uh, and this is very interesting, we don't say bagel, we say bagel. Yes. And he brings over bagels and sweet Jewish bread and some donuts and sweets for the kids and sits there and sees the kids. If I go back to Bethnal Green to visit the Mitchell family or whatever, uh, my kids ask me to stop off at Brick Lane and I go to get bagels and salt beef bagels or smoked salmon and cream cheese. I also go to Polici's quite a lot, which is a famous cafe in Bethany yeah. Green, and my mates of my mates' family have run that since 1904, and that's kind of like my a bit of my home from home. Yeah. So I pop in there and see them. I love that your dad comes over. It feels like you're proper friends now. Yeah, he comes over and he pops around. And I tell you what, my kids love it because my kids live a very you know, middle class West London life, and then they've got this Cockney granddad who comes round. <laughs> tells quite... tells them about being a fiddle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, looking at your life, it's really struck me just how much it's changed over the years from where you live in to the types of people that you're meeting. I'm really interested. Has your approach to food really shifted as well? I cook a lot more yeah. than I used to. My kids would go to school with lots of... My, my, my son's best friend is a Sikh family. So I started cooking a lot of curries and stuff yeah. because when they would come around and they'd show me how to cook curries and we'd, 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 I, could, I cook a lot more now. Yeah. But I love going back to the East End. Uh, I think one of the reasons I love going back to the East End is because they loved me when I wasn't famous. You know what I mean? I go yeah. if I go and see Manuel and and Nelson and Mum and all that, they sit there. They loved me when there was nothing in it for them, and now I have a lot of people who want to talk to me because of their preconceived idea of me, or, or because of a level of fame. But when I go and see them, it's my my wife said to me when I'm with Emmanuel, she said, you, "You're 14 again," and I relax and I'm, and that's I'm getting welling up now. But that yeah. means so much to me. They loved me because it was kind too, because they were just being kind. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Eddie Marsan, thank you for comforting me. Thank you very much, Emmy. What remarkable. (laughs) (laughs) This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Emma Roberts. The series producer is Leah Green and the executive producer is Kathy Drysdale. Music and sound design is by Axel Cacoutier and this episode was mixed by Solomon King. If you like comfort eating, please leave us a review. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag ComfortEatingPod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort foods. This is The Guardian.